we read in God's word. This morning we're going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 14 through 24. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. All right, we're continuing in our study in the book of Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 9. We'll be looking at uh, verses 14 through 29. 14 through 29. This passage of Scripture is a, a dialogue and what that is, is it's a, it's a, it's a rhetorical device. A, a, an argument is made, but it only has one person, and one person is playing both sides of the argument. Now, you've had the, these arguments before. You always win them. You've had an argument with your spouse in the car. You win that fight every time, right? So this is an argument where Paul is posing the question, and these questions are probably questions that have been posed to the Apostle Paul throughout his time traveling around talking to churches. And so these aren't new questions for him, and these are questions he's probably been asked. And so what he's doing is he's then providing a sense, a a way of thinking through these uh, questions. So it's a a question and answer. And and so let's look at one of the questions. It's uh, down in verse 19. Why does God still find fault? So that's one of the questions that he's probably been asked a number of times when thinking about how God saves people and who God saves and all these things. Uh, the question is that, why does God uh, still find fault? What kind of a question is this question? When, when somebody asks a question, why, there's two things they might be trying to do. First thing they might be trying to do is gain some information. Gain some information. Uh, why uh, does something happen is an effort to gain, well, you know, an understanding of why something happens. But this question isn't a question that is designed to gain information. This question is designed to accuse. Why does God still find fault? So this person is not trying to gain information about who God is and what he's up to and how he works. This is a person who who has found an accusation against God, basically saying, in the fact that God does find fault, if you've read your Bible, you notice that he actually expects people to be holy and righteous. Why does God do that? Therefore, there must be something wrong with God. So these back and forth questions, really there's just two of them we're going to cover, 
reveal a problem. And that's the title of the message today, and here's what it is. Our problem with God. Our problem with God. I'm assuming you have a problem with God. Uh, You may not believe me, and probably by the end of the message you won't believe me, because you're going to be arguing with me the whole time. And probably winning the argument in your head. But we have a problem with God. Here's what the two problems are. We're going to cover them in two parts of this uh, passage. The first problem we have with God, we have a problem with what he does. We have a problem with what he does and maybe even what he doesn't do. So we might say it this way. One of our problems with God is his agenda. What he is doing. His agenda is a problem for us. And we're going to look at what his agenda is. And we will try to understand how we have a problem with that. Second problem we have with God is how he does it. We have a problem with what God does, his agenda, and we have a problem with how God does it. How does God do what he does? Here's what we're going to discover. In absolute and total freedom, accountable to nobody but himself. That's how he does it. God does what he does, which we don't like, in absolute and total freedom, accountable to nobody. That drives us bonkers. That's our problems with God. Our problem with God is his agenda. And secondly, our problem with God is his freedom. We're going to look at these in turn in the two sections of the scripture here today. So we're going to start in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God fair? Look at verse 13. If you happen to have your Bible out, it says this is coming from the uh, passage that Pastor Seth preached for us. Uh, several weeks ago, it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated, saying, God, for his purposes, chose Jacob to be the father of his people, the people of Israel, and not Esau. And so the question is, is God fair? Is God fair? Is there injustice on God's part? And the answer is, by no means. And we're going to figure out what that agenda is in uh, just a moment. If you go to air shows, you maybe have seen uh, a demonstration team called the Blue Angels. Who's heard of the Blue Angels? The naval uh, demonstration team. They fly these airplanes at a high rate of speed really close to one another and really, really uh, low. What is the point of the Blue Angels demonstration squadron? The point is to show the capability of the aircraft, the capability of the pilots, and the capability of the, uh, of the unit as a whole. So that's the point. Is the point of the Blue Angels to win a battle? Now, if you're at Kingsley Field and you're watching the Blue Angels and they're doing, and then they start dropping bombs, everybody, uh, what's up with this? This is not what they're designed to do. They're designed to demonstrate capabilities, not take out uh, Klamath County. And some of you say, "Well, well, I don't see the problem." Now, Klamath County is fine. There's nothing wrong with Klamath County. I got family over there. So that's the point. Now, some people who are living in the neighborhoods around Kingsley Field might write in a complaint to their local newspaper if they still do that. These air demonstrations, two problems I have with these air demonstrations. Number one, the planes are loud. Have you noticed those planes are loud? Secondly, they fly too low. If the Blue Angels want to come here and show off, that's fine. Do it at a high altitude with quiet. Right? And and what do you say? Well, that completely undermines the agenda. The whole idea is they're loud and low. That's the whole uh, idea. What is God's agenda? It's in verse 17. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's power, 
being on display is his agenda. And to limit the display of God's power would be to ask God to stop being God. As soon as you limit the blue angels, that's no longer, you've missed the point. If they got to fly way far away. If you say, God, we don't want to see your power displayed in powerfully ways, powerful ways, we are asking God to stop being God. When we want God limited in his display of his power, we demonstrate that there isn't a problem with God in his display of his power. We dis- demonstrate there's a problem with us being okay with him doing what he wants to do. And God shows his power in a particular way in this passage. Verse 14, is there injustice with God? By no means. Verse 15, God says to Moses, all have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Is God unfair? No, because no one deserves his mercy. I got to qualify this message uh, here for a minute. There's a really good part of this message coming, okay? It's when it ends. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We're learning what God is like, and God is not us. And this is, when I say we have a problem with God, I'm not playing. What we're going to discover, God operates separate than we do, and he's not asking our permission. And so let's jump into this. Here we go, because it's going to get worse before it gets better. Are you ready? You're, you're not. Okay, here we go. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Let's understand this from a broader viewpoint of justice and mercy. Is God fair? No. The last thing we would ever want is for God to do it fair. Because the moment Adam and Eve ate the fruit off of that apple tree, or that fruit tree, whatever you want to call it, mango tree, ribeye steak tree, The moment they did that, God was well within his rights just to erase it all and start over if he wanted. There was no reason as soon as that sin occurred that he should show mercy to to anyone. He is not morally obligated to show mercy. He said, here's everything I have made. Here's how you work within it in a connection with me. And when you don't do that, if you eat from the forbidden tree, what was the result? You will surely Die. I mean, he told everything was told up front. They ate from the tree. The moment they ate from that tree and didn't immediately physically die, we knew we had on our hands a God of mercy. Because they should have. But he decided in his forbearance and foreknowledge to show mercy in this. What we discover here is there injustice on God's part? No. He has seen fit to show mercy on whom he will show mercy. Mercy. He doesn't have to show mercy and compassion on anyone. And it is not unfair that he has determined to show mercy and compassion to some. Even me saying that is troubling, isn't it? I mean, you may as well just own it. Even saying that is troubling. What we're trying to recognize through the scripture is this. The trouble is not with God. The trouble is we want to to preconceive how God ought to operate according to our notions. And God showing mercy to any is merciful. But let's keep looking at it. And we're going to look at an Old Testament example of Pharaoh to try and wrap our heads around uh, what this mercy looks like in our experience. Verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And here's this Old Testament example in verse 17. 
The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on who he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Pharaoh had a job. He was Pharaoh, in charge of pretty much all of Egypt. Who made Pharaoh Pharaoh? God did. God is the one. He says right there, he raised him up. God made Pharaoh, and he made Pharaoh for a particular purpose. His purpose was that he might show his power and proclaim his great name. We've got a number of passages we want to look at, look at over in Exodus chapter 9. If you want to follow along, you can uh, turn there. We're going to start in Exodus 9, verse 12. Moses has just, by the power of God, had one of the plagues. The plague that has just ended is he threw some soot into the air, and everybody got sores and boils on them. Nasty. It's like everybody had poison oak real bad. Verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. First question. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? It says right there. The Lord did. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Let's keep reading for the next plague, which is the plague of hail. The Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and go down and see Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, he's supposed to say to Pharaoh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me on the earth. For by now I could have out of my hand uh, struck you and your people with pestilence and cut you off from the face of the earth. He could have just wiped them out in one fell swoop, he says, but he didn't. But for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Who was doing the exalting? Pharaoh. Pay attention. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Says the Lord did. But is Pharaoh just sitting by having his heart hardened? No. Pharaoh is engaged with this. Pharaoh also is exalting himself, acting as though he were God. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I'll cause a very heavy hail to fall. Hail like has never been seen in Egypt. Be sure to put your animals away, otherwise they're going to get tenderized. The people who feared the Lord put their animals away. The people who didn't fear the Lord left their animals out, and they died in the, in the hail. Let's scroll down, because I'm using my device scrolling. Verse 27, Pharaoh, after the hail came, sent and called Moses and said, I've sinned. The Lord is right. Plead with the Lord that the storm will stop. And Moses said, yeah, sure thing. It'll stop. And as soon as I leave the city, the storm will stop. So Moses prayed and the storm stopped. And then what did Pharaoh do? What happened to Pharaoh after the storm stopped? Did he say, you know what? The people of Israel should go live on their own. Didn't he say that? No, not yet. Verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and listen, and hardened his heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh did. So Pharaoh had a hard heart, a disbelieving heart, an arrogant heart that refused to believe the things of God, and the reason his heart was hard. Was it because the Lord hardened his heart, or was it because Pharaoh hardened his heart? Yes. Both. God did, in fact, harden his heart. We should not pull the punch on that. God does what he wants to do. 
for his agenda. Was Pharaoh arguing with what God was doing? Absolutely not. If, if you would have asked Pharaoh, do you want your heart hardened towards God? He'd be diamond hard. I want it hardened because that, that was Pharaoh was, was a part of this uh, process. God's agenda in hardening Pharaoh's heart and having Pharaoh harden his own heart was to demonstrate his power through the plagues and through the Red Sea and to proclaim the greatness of his name. That was his agenda. His agenda was not the comfort of the people of Israel. His agenda was not getting over on Pharaoh. Pharaoh is nothing compared to the Lord. His agenda was to demonstrate his power and proclaim the name of the Lord is great. That's the whole agenda. And Pharaoh fit into that agenda by having his heart hardened and hardening his heart. The people of Israel experienced that agenda as the great mercy of God delivering them from Egypt through the Red Sea. How serious is God about this agenda? One last Old Testament reference over in Numbers 14. Numbers 14. People of Israel have been wandering around in the desert. They get over to the promised land. They send in 12 spies. The 12 spies find really big grapes. And they also find really big people. The 12 spies come back. And if you remember the story, 10 of the spies said, they're really big people. They're going to kill us. We look like grasshoppers to them. In fact, we look like grasshoppers to us compared to them. And Joshua and Caleb said, let's go in and get rowdy. We think with the strength of the Lord, we can win. And what the people of Israel say? Wasn't Egypt so fantastic? The floggings and the having your children stolen and the forced labor marches, they were so wonderful because we had free meat pots. Right? You remember this? And so God decided in this moment as Israel is rebelling against him, God told Moses, I'm going to destroy the people of Israel. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. I'm going to make a people that's even better than the people of Israel from you, Moses. And Moses argues with God. And what argument did Moses make to keep God from wiping out the people of Israel? Let's look at it. Numbers 14, 13. Moses said to the Lord, the Egyptians will hear of it. Okay. For you brought this people in your might from among them. What is he appealing to? Remember, God, you showed your power. You demonstrated your power. That's your agenda. Everybody will tell the inhabitants of the land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over your people, and you go before them in a a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. If you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord wasn't able to bring his people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. See what he appealed to? Lord, everybody will say you weren't able to get the job done. What was God's agenda? Show his power. So all Moses is doing here, he says, I know what your agenda is. And I'm going to pray in accordance with your agenda, showing your power. God, if you don't take the people of Israel in, everybody will talk about the fact that you weren't able to get them in. It's fantastic. He was appealing to God's agenda. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. 
Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So uh, Moses makes two arguments. If you don't take them in, they won't think you're powerful. And guess what, God? I know something about you. What? You're always forgiving everybody. And what did, Moses, what did God do? You're right, Moses. I'm going to make them wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. You didn't pray about that. But I won't wipe them out because, Moses, you're absolutely right. My, my goal is to proclaim the greatness of my name and the power of my might and to wipe these people out goes contrary to my agenda, and so I won't uh, do it. Moses understood God's goal. Moses understood God's power and the glory of his name. And as a result, they experienced his mercy through Moses' intercessory prayer. God's goal was not merely to alleviate the suffering of Israel. God's goal was not merely to give them a land of milk and honey. His goal was not merely to have people have a house to live in and a cistern and a vineyard. His goal is what? To show his power and proclaim the greatness of his name. Let's go back to Romans 9, since we're in that passage this morning, apparently. Romans chapter 9, we're going to finish this section out. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and the name of my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Remember again, um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Even before they picked that fruit, or as they were reaching to pick the fruit, they had a problem with God, and it's the problem we have here. God was insisting on being God in that relationship. God had told them, this is how you have a relationship with me. This is how you participate in my creation and my blessing and relationship with me. They didn't like the fact that in the terms of that relationship, God was insisting on being God. And so the tempter came to them and said, if you eat the fruit, what will you be like? You will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And that was the problem. They had a problem with God being God and having his own agenda that they didn't like. And so they decided to try and have their own agenda. But the result is when we separate from God, we experience death because he is the source of our life. The problem is with God's agenda is as his creation, we want our own agenda, but his glory is his uh, purpose. All right. Our problem with God. First one we're done with, his agenda. Guess what? It's going to get worse before it gets better. So if you want to leave, you better leave now. Here we go. You ready? The challenge is that God, since God's agenda is different than ours, God's agenda is displaying his power and proclaiming his great name. The problem is also he has this agenda which we don't like and he is totally free. He is totally free to, do, to act in uh, complete accordance with who he is and what his purposes is. So what God does in freedom, we find troubling. So our problem with God is his freedom. There's an entire, uh, I don't know how to say it, section of journalism. It's called Sports Talk Radio. Have you heard of Sports Talk Radio? I mean, come on, you're going to act like, no, we don't, I don't know sports talk radio. So the whole idea of sports talk radio, and of course I'm being sarcastic to some degree, is this. People who couldn't get jobs with sports teams explain on their radio why people who got jobs on sports teams are doing it all wrong. 
Is that, am I close? So this team decides to trade this player for that player, and the guy on the radio gets on and explains why that general manager is a moron. Now, I don't know whether or not the guy on the radio could ever get a job as a general manager or not. What do we got? We call this armchair quarterback. We call it Monday morning quarterbacking. And actually, it's one of the, whole, one of the joys of being a sports fan. We get to question the decisions of people making uh, the decisions uh, on the field and in terms of player personnel. And that's part of the fun. What we don't like, we, we like it when a general manager of a sports team makes decisions and it goes according to our plan. They got the player I wanted and they won the championship. So I'm happy with the GM, right? But what if the GM doesn't call me and ask me what to do? What if he is a moron? Well, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a problem with the fact that as GM, he gets to do whatever he wants without, without asking me. Of course, I can't intervene on, my, on, on behalf of my team because there's no way I could even get in the building. Not that I haven't tried. That restraining order is ending soon. It's fine. Um, but what I can do is complain to everybody around me about how terrible they are. So that's the idea of sports, right? Sports talk radio. But here's the problem is we have a problem with God. He is constantly and forever doing things that we don't think are right. And it drives us bonkers. The reality is we don't have so much uh, a problem with God acting like God, meaning free to do whatever he sees fit according to his nature and his purpose. The problem is when God sees free to do whatever he sees fit and it's different than what we want him to do. That drives us nuts. When his freedom is different than what we want, we get upset. God, why don't you do it the way I think it ought to be done? Well, the Bible tells us exactly how this works in this passage, and you're not going to like it at all. One commentator said this is the most unliked verse in the Bible. So you're probably not going to write this in a Christmas card. Verse 19. Are you ready? Here we go. You will say to me then... If God has mercy on whoever he wants and hardens whoever he wants, why does God still find fault? Because who can resist his will? Verse 20, are you ready? Who are you to answer back to God? That's the whole answer. I mean, really, we could end right now, but he's going to spend the rest of the passage explaining who are you to talk back to God. Now, right now, sitting here this morning, thinking about our relationship with God, that seems a little... Well, that's a little annoying. But if you've been a parent longer than five minutes, you totally get this. Would you please clean your room? Why? And already you're like, oh, no, you're not. No, just the correct response is, yes, daddy, and proceed. Right? That is the correct and acceptable response. Any response outside of that, I smite you, or whatever you might do in your house. I don't know what you do. So we get it. There's a sense of authority. No, you don't get to decide whether or not you like what I'm saying. But then God comes to us and he says, I will have mercy on who I have mercy. Who should I have mercy on? To be fair, he shouldn't have mercy on anyone. He decides to have mercy on some. And we say, well, God, why do you do that way? And he goes, what? Let's look at the, the illustration that he uses here. He says, will what is molded respond to the molder, why have you made me like this? If you're making a pot out of clay and you put the handles in a particular way because that's the easiest way for you to use them. Will the pot say to you, why don't you put the handles here? Why don't you put them a little bit lower? And you would say, what are you talking to me for? I'll make the pot any way I want it. I don't care what the pot thinks. I am the one who is making it. Verse 21 is the main point of this problem we have. 
Does the potter have no right over the clay? If you're making something with clay, do you have rights over the clay? Doesn't it seem silly, doesn't it? All of a sudden we're in school doing clay things. Do we have right over the Yeah, because it's just clay. Where, do we, where did we suddenly come to the point where we think God has no right over what he has made? Everything that is, God has made. Before he made anything, there was nothing other than God. The only thing that has always been is God himself. Everything outside of God himself existed after God and exists because God made. Everything that is has been made by God. He decided for whatever reason to put our feet on the bottom and our heads on the top. He didn't have to. He could have done it whichever way he saw fit as an expression of who he is. And, and we forget this. We forget that God has made everything. That if he wanted to, he could just hit the reset button and start over. If he wanted to. Thankfully, he doesn't want to. He wants to have mercy on those he wants to have mercy on. He wants to have compassion. Has the potter no right over the clay? And look at the illustration that is made. You could take one lump of, co- uh, of clay and make a vessel for honorable use and another one for dishonorable use. Do you have a right to do that as a craftsman? You get a lump of clay. I've never done this, but I can imagine. You cut it in half. And one you make into a serving platter. You, you paint it a particular way, maybe with your family colors. Put a nice little inscription on it. You cover it with a glaze. You throw it and you fire it in the kiln. And then when you have really important guests over, you serve food on it. After the food is served, you cleaned it. But that platter is not put away. You've got a shelf that you set that on. It is prominently displayed in the home. And when people visit your home, you say, I've got to show you my platter. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've seen platters, but this platter, whoa, look at this platter. And the people are like, whoa, I can't believe we got to see your platter. It's amazing. It's a lot of fun. You take from the other lump, that other half of that clay, and you make a pot, but it's not decorated. It's just the pot. You made it a particular size. We'll get that to a minute. Get that into it in a minute. And, and, the, and then you fired it in the kiln, and then you put it next to your bed. Oh, you, okay, some people know where we're going. Because back then, do you want to go outside and do your business at night? No, what's, what's happening at night outside? Nocturnal animals, you're doing what nocturnal animals do. What do they do at night? Eat people. Will you wake up in the middle of the night? If you're getting older, you know how this goes. <laughs> okay, I won't go there, all right. Get an email. We don't need your potty humor. Okay. Put it there so in the middle of the night you can do your business. Then in the morning when the sun comes up and all the nocturnal animals are now in bed, you can take it out, you can discard it in an acceptable location, maybe rinse it out in the stream, and then you can put it. And what do you do with that pot? You put that on the middle of your dining room table? No, nobody wants to see that thing. Nobody wants to see it. You put it under the bed. You hide it away. Now as the potter, do you get to decide which half of that clay gets one into a chamber pot and which one gets made into Do you get to do that? Do you, are you taking votes from the clay? Say, well, which one of you ought to be the chamber pot? No, it's totally up to you. Nobody gets to give you input. You get to do whatever you want. This is how the Bible describes God and creation, the whole thing. Not only is it clay, he made the clay to begin with. The whole thing is his. And this is why when God has a, when we have a problem with God acting freely, It's not because there's a problem with God. It's we have failed to understand the the situation. We are his creation. 
We have been formed according to his purpose, according to his plan, according to his discretion and his discretion alone. And if that's troubling to you, welcome to the human race. It's troubling to all of us. Why is it troubling to us? Because it's because God is troubling? No, it's because we have rebellion in our hearts through our sin. It's troubling because we got ruined. And we ruined ourselves through rebellion. Whole in our righteousness in Christ, and one day when we are in glory, we will celebrate the fact that God does whatever he wants. But until that day, we're going to find it terribly troubling that nobody is looking over God's shoulders to make sure he's being nice. Even though we know uh, he is. Why would he do this? Verse 22, God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels prepared for mercy, prepared, in fact, uh, beforehand. So God is working goodness in his creation by seeing fit to show mercy to those who will receive it, and those who reject his mercy, he sees fit to allow to experience uh, his wrath. Okay, let's end with some final words from the Older Testament in verses 24 through 29. The Apostle Paul quotes from Hosea, a prophet in the Old Testament. If you haven't read Hosea recently, you should give it a read today. It's a fantastic love story. Don't read it to your kids if they're under 10. A little racy. Look what he says from the book of Hosea. Why would God do this? Here it is. He has called us, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as it says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who uh, was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So the first thing we discover about God's agenda is people who consider it a right to know God may not know God. And those who do not consider it a right to know God may, in fact, know God. So this is what was happening among the people of Israel. They said, since I am a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God has to let me in. And God says, I don't think so. I will let those in who I show mercy and who respond to my mercy by faith. But then you have other people who aren't sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Gentiles, as many of us are. And we say, well, since I'm not among the people of God, I can't know God. And God says... I don't think so. As we learned in Romans earlier, when you put faith in Christ for salvation, you are a son of Abraham. And so being of the people of Israel is not necessary to be of the people of God. And people of Israel are not necessarily the people of God. The people of God are those who have experienced God's mercy through faith alone. Finally, let's look at uh, Isaiah in verses 27, 28, and 29. You ready? Isaiah says this, Though the number of the sons of Israel would be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth fully and without delay. Like Isaiah says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. So what it says here, certainly the people of Israel and even the people of humankind are like sands on the seashore, but God has seen fit to save some. If God had not saved some, the people of Israel and really humankind would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. What was Sodom and Gomorrah like? You don't don't go there on vacation because it doesn't exist. Because it was scorched earth. God's judgment was experienced on 
that people because they did not receive uh, his mercy. So if God hadn't been merciful, no one would be of the people of God. The fact that God shows mercy to some shows that God is merciful. So let's phrase it this way as a way of wrapping up before we got three sort of questions to think through. God's freedom is, in fact, what provides us the opportunity to experience his mercy. So we are troubled by his freedom, but if God wasn't free to act in accordance with his nature, none of us would experience his mercy because his nature is the nature of mercy. On the other hand, to experience mercy, we must believe. Does God save us or do we believe to become saved? What's the answer? Yes. God sees fit to save, but to be saved, you must believe. We are both responsible to believe and held responsible if we reject God. On the other hand, have you believed? That was God's work in you. You don't get to claim uh, some kind of super spiritual award just because you believe. God has seen fit to allow you uh, to believe. Okay, three questions and then your favorite part of the message, at least this one, the end. You made it. Look at that. Good for you. You made it. Three questions. Are you ready? And by three, I mean six. What is God's agenda for your life? What is God's agenda for your life in particular? Display his power. Proclaim his great name. What's his agenda for your life in particular? Same as it always has been to display his power and proclaim his great name. What if... Your agenda for God in your life is different than that. I'm being nice. I know it is. Well, what's your agenda for God in your life? You've got a number of them. I want to find love. I need a better job. I want to not be sick. I want somebody to get better. I want such and such party to be in the White House. You know, I don't know what it is, but you've got all kinds of agendas for God. And he has seen fit to merely have an agenda of making known his power and proclaiming his great name. He has not seen fit to check in with you on how that agenda is expressed, and you find it frustrating. I find it frustrating. We all find it frustrating. What we shouldn't do is pretend we're just good Christians. We never get frustrated with God. That would just be ridiculous. What we ought to do is just admit the reality of it. God, when you don't do things the way I think you ought to do, it's annoying. Would you make my heart different so I wouldn't find you annoying? Because he's not he doesn't need to change, does he? Is there something he needs to do different? I don't think so. If he's changing for you, then you're God. None of us want you to be God. But if I got a problem with God, it by definition means there's something going wrong in my heart, and I, I want God to figure that out and show me what it is. Frustration occurs when my agenda for my life is different than God's agenda for my life. And that's a routine Monday morning, Tuesday morning kind of thing. The trick is by faith saying, okay, God, I need you to show me what's going on in my heart. Not what's wrong with you. Okay. Next one. You ready? Do you find it bothersome that God does whatever he wants in total freedom? Do you find it bothersome that God does whatever he wants and he just simply refuses to check in with you? If so, here's my question. What kind of God would you prefer? Would you prefer a kind of God that has to check in with you? Well, we have these kinds of God that haven't been imagined. 
It's the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods. That's all those gods are, is the imaginations of people. What would God look like if, if he would do things the way I think they ought to be done? And exactly that's what we get from the Roman and Greek pantheon of gods. We get impetuous gods. We get gods that act on impulse. We get gods that care not for others, but care only for themselves. We get some gods who are ineffective. You get a god of the sea. That's not useful. What if you find yourself on a planet with no ocean? What are you going to do now? You've got a god of the lightning. What are you going to do if, if lightning doesn't solve all the problems? Like if you need to reset the, the clock on your microwave, throwing lightning bolts is just going to require you to buy a new microwave. So sometimes we imagine these gods are powerless, they're impetuous, but we love these kind of gods. How do I know we love these kind of gods? The Marvel Cinematic Universe. We've paid billions of dollars to watch these gods at work. And they're, and they're complete morons. They're destroying everything. They nearly destroyed New York. Did you see that movie? I mean, isn't there a better way? I mean, if your solution is releasing the Hulk... I mean, you obviously don't have any nuanced solutions. What do we do? I think we're just going to have to release the Hulk. No, that's your answer. Well, this is what you end up, if you want God who has to check with you, that's what you end up with. Powerless, ineffective, impetuous, at the end of the day, useless. But if you want God who is God, who doesn't need to check, guess what? You've got that in spades because that's who has shown us mercy. And that's, we've got to be honest here, that's exactly the God we need, and that's the God who is, whether we need it, think we need it or not. God exists, irregardless of whether we not want to accept him. Okay, finally this, we'll close with this. Seek God's mercy. God has mercy on who has mercy. God has compassion on who has compassion. But the Bible is clear. We ought to seek his mercy. We, we want to seek his mercy. Say, God, like Moses did with the people of Israel. God, I know what you're like. You're a merciful God. You're always forgiving people. Seek his mercy that we might experience. And, and for those of us who are Christians, I think we just, there's a place for us in recognizing what God is like to simmer down on how awesome and spiritual we think we are. There's a place for us to say as Christians, guess what? You believed. Yes, you believed. Why at the end of the day did you believe? God saw fit to get you there. And, and if we start thinking we're spiritually insightful, so I read the Bible and I got it, that's just a point of arrogance that we just don't need. The reason we see our need for salvation is because the Holy Spirit reveals it to it, not because we are something uh, more than clay in his hand. God it was just that kind to bring us to the point of faith. We have a problem with God. His agenda, what he does, and his freedom, how he does it. We can pray that God by his spirit would help us to receive him for who he is.